From the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., welcome to the Kalb Report. Thank you, Mr. President. A conversation on the press and the presidency with veteran White House correspondents Helen Thomas, Dan Rather, David Gregory, and David Sanger. Our series is produced by the George Washington University, the National Press Club, and the Joan Shorenstein Center at Harvard University. The Kalb Report is underwritten by a grant from the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. And now, Marvin Kalb. Hello and welcome to the National Press Club and to another edition of the Kalb Report. I'm Marvin Kalb, the Welling Presidential Fellow at the George Washington University and the Murrow Professor Emeritus at Harvard. Thank you, Mr. President. With that polite expression of gratitude, a reporter officially ends a presidential news conference. And with that polite expression, we begin our discussion of how reporters cover the President of the United States, arguably one of the most important influential people in the world. For any reporter, especially in this age of television and the internet, this is a huge responsibility, placing him or her at the center of the political universe. A reporter seen as a critic is going to be attacked by the President's supporters. A reporter seen as a cheerleader is going to be attacked by the president's critics. A reporter becomes a player, whether by intent or not. To unknot this complex and consequential relationship, we have invited four outstanding correspondents to this edition of the Calb Report, one of whom started covering the White House when President Kennedy was in office, one when President Nixon was in office, and two, who have covered President George H. Bush, George W. Bush. <laughs> On my left, David Sanger, Chief Washington Correspondent for the New York Times. He joined the paper 24 years ago. He's been Bureau Chief in Tokyo, covered Asia, and for five years, the Bush White House. Twice, he has been on a Times reporting team that won the Pulitzer Prize. To my right, David Gregory, Chief White House Correspondent, who has covered President Bush for the past seven years. He joined NBC in 1995 and has become a substitute anchor for NBC Nightly News, the Today program, and Meet the Press. To my immediate left, my colleague at CBS News for many years, Dan Rather, now anchor and managing editor of HDNet's Dan Rather Reports. Rather joined CBS in 1962 and anchored the CBS Evening News for more than 20 years, covering every story, domestic and foreign, for which he won many prizes. And to my immediate right, the legend herself, <laughs> Helen Thomas, often referred to as the First Lady of the Press. She's covered every president since President Kennedy. For more than 50 years, she was White House correspondent for the United Press International She's now a syndicated columnist for Hearst Newspapers. Okay, let's start with what amounts to lesson one in Washington journalism. How do you get news out of the White House? Now, lots of information comes out of the White House, and some of it could even be described as political propaganda. But news, David Gregory, how do you get that? out of the White House? Well, it's difficult. It's difficult in any administration that's operating a very large public relations machine that's on message, that has become more uh, sophisticated 
as time has gone on, particularly with the advent of television and now the internet and, and narrow casting a particular message. So you're up against a huge machine and your job is to try to uh, not only work sources, which we all try to do, but you have to know your subject. You know, you have to know the president you're covering and understand what he is saying, what he's not saying, what he's leaving unsaid. You have to learn how to analyze based on a set of facts uh, to discern where the news is. Um, and I think you have to be, something I remember talking about with David Sanger early on in this Bush administration, you begin to see what territory a president stakes out. And then you, as time goes by, you then use that record to start comparing promises made, promises kept. Uh, and that's one of the ways you do it. David Sanger, what is your approach to covering the White House? Well, I think you have to start with the assumption that only about 5% of what you need to know you're going to get in that little White House press room. Um, you're in there as little as you possibly can be. And while people see those briefings on TV, uh, that's the easiest part of your day because you actually get to sit down and maybe even eat lunch while you're hearing the briefing. Um, but so you don't attend a briefing we, on a regular we, basis? We do go to the briefings. We do go to the briefings. One of the, we, the Times usually has either two or three White House correspondents, mm -hmm. and you know, we flip for it in the morning. Um, <laughs> but uh, what the briefing is mostly useful for is understanding that delta between what the rest of your reporting is showing and what the White House is willing to go say. Now, that may be that you've learned something that the press secretary doesn't yet know, or it may be that you're touching on a subject that's very sensitive for the, for the White House, and you understand that in the evasions that you get in the answers. Um, and then there's another vital role to those briefings, which is to understand that next Tuesday you're going to be in Des Moines, and right. you know, so that you can organize your life. Um, I found with the Bush White House, the most important thing to do was to report from the outside in, which is to say that you spend most of your time talking to members of Congress, foreign diplomats, outside advisors to the White House who have been called in and had a discussion. And then you discover that the subject matter that they're talking about may not be exactly what it is you're hearing from the podium. Being a member of the New York Times, is it easier for you to get a return call than it would be, say, for the Des Moines Register? I think it may be easier to get a returned call, but that doesn't mean it's easier to get an answer. <laughs> that too. That, that too. too. <laughs> Helen Thomas, go back to Kennedy. What was the difference then in getting information out of the Kennedy White House as opposed to the Bush White House? You could walk down the street with Kennedy Pierre Salinger was, had total entree to the Oval Office, and though he wasn't always able to tell you exactly, he could lift an eyebrow or give you some direction. You had some sense of access and some sense of what was going on. Uh, he was warm, witty. Uh, he held great news conferences. Didn't tell you much, but uh, <laughs> they were a lot of fun. You didn't have this sense of, of uh, sinister secrecy that you have now. But in those days, um, it was known, I don't know how widely known, that President Kennedy was a womanizer. Now, a lot of reporters knew that, too, but they didn't report it. Why not? It was a different era. 
there was a, a code, a gentleman's code, basically. You didn't write about anything uh, concerning a public official unless it impacted what he did, impacted on his public duties and responsibilities. The 60s changed all that, the sexual revolution, everything. So now it's no holds barred. Uh, tabloid will, will cover it if the mainstream decides not to cover it, and you will be forced to. Dan Rather, when you were covering both Linda Johnson and Richard Nixon, was there at that time what is currently called a gaggle, that there'd be a group of reporters who would go in two or three hours before the actual press conference at the White House, and you would get sort of a tip as to what was going to happen that day? Well, that's true. And the gaggle now has become a, a herd. I think it's very important to, to recognize, which I do, it's much more difficult, I think, to be a White House correspondent now uh, than it was during uh, the Johnson or Nixon administrations in this sense. When I first came to the White House in uh, 1963, that the, I thought the White House press corps was huge. I had never seen anything like it and thought, how in the world can they handle this many people in there? Uh, and they probably had 35 or 36 correspondents who were there on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Now you're dealing with hundreds, travel the same way. So it's important in, in the context of this conversation to keep in mind how much larger the White House press corps has grown on overseas trips. Sometimes, David, you tell me, they have to have two or three press planes to carry the reporters on an overseas trip. Well, it's still just one, one big one, but you're right. Jumbo I mean, it's a jumbo. big, yeah. Okay. But nonetheless, the size of the press corps has grown tremendously. Uh, secondly, each succeeding presidential administration, and there are no exceptions, has tried to refine what the previous administration did that worked in manipulating the press, mm -hmm. controlling the press's access, and trying to dominate, having the president dominate any landscape he occupies. Now, something was mentioned earlier, I think David mentioned it, about the secrecy of this administration, which is a, 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 something for the public to think about, how deep the secrecy goes, how tight the secrecy is. But it, it is built on the foundation laid by previous presidents, both Democrat and Republican. And I think we in the press have a lot to answer for, for not sounding the alarm on this louder, stronger, unrelentingly, unrelentingly in previous administrations of saying, folks, pay attention. Can I just pick up on a couple of points, Marvin, that I think are important? One is, and, and I've heard Helen say this, part of your news gathering is just being there. You know, I remember when the president announced that the war had begun in Afghanistan, I could tell because I, was, I could tell who was around. You know, the press secretary was around. I saw Carl Rowe, people like that. It was a Sunday morning. But my real tip was when I saw the makeup artist uh -huh. walk from the West Wing over to the residence. And I knew, unless the president was just getting made up for a Sunday run, that he had something significant to say. So being there is important. But that refining point, access has been restricted in this White House. You can't see the comings and the goings the way that you used to in previous administrations. That was actual news gathering in the White House to see who was coming in. So I think that's changed a great deal. And then I think something that, that we ought to amplify on is the televised briefing in the Clinton administration was thought to be this revolution. It changed the way the press corps behaved. It changed the, changed the way the, the White House behaved. But in the age of the internet, what's changed even more, and, and Dan, you can speak about the years of Watergate, there is so much more polarization within the press 
and then within the, the body politic, that people try to divine or assign our motives, even in the course of the briefing. So people look at reporters who cover the White House through their own political prism and say, aha, they're asking this question because they've got an ax to grind, or they're asking that question because they just love the president. And we're caught up in that in a way that I, I don't know. You think that's because of television, cable, and so forth? I think it's because of the internet, largely. I mean, I think that that's the, 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 the kind of, um, the, the polarized atmosphere in the internet and blogs and whatnot, I think, have been a major contributor to that. But I also would say, with the knowledge of history, that during the Nixon White House, there was some of that as well, people sort of looking at reporters through their own political prison. But, but all of you, no matter which president you've covered, dealt with a press secretary. Right. And you spent a lot of time with the press secretary. So I got a couple of questions there. Give me the name of a really good White House press secretary. George Jerry Christian Tuhorst, Pierre he lasted Salinger. one George month. George Christian, Pierre Salinger. <laughs> Helen, who'd you say? Jerry, Jerry Tuhorst, he lasted one month. That's the best? <laughs> the best. He resigned on a point of integrity, personal integrity, credibility, which is essential. Once, once you're finished, quote unquote, with the press secretary, the formal part, David Sanger, who do you turn to to get the backup information? the perspective on a story. Well, you know, the first thing I would say about a press secretary is I think the most important part of their job, and it's sort of a lost art in this administration, is not that briefing, wonderful as the performance is. It's that 6 p.m. phone call in which the press secretary might say, or someone else in the administration might say, look, I know we've been talking about X subject all day, but ignore this because, you know, the truly interesting change here is why, you know. And that conversation, which happened sometimes in the uh, Clinton administration when I covered President Clinton, pretty much went away hmm. in the Bush administration. Hmm. Uh, you mean no 6 p.m. telephone No, call? you know, there just was not that sort of end of the day, let's sort through what was real and what was Memorex that you, that you saw mm -hmm. today. Um, so that's number one. Number two is, I think it is more vital than ever, if you're going to go deal with the press secretary, that you've done your reporting all before those conversations <laughs> take place. Because the only way you're really going to go get an answer is to say, look, we've got a story going in the paper tomorrow that says <clears throat> the following about a decision the president has made, a conversation, a recommendation, a national intelligence estimate, a whatever. When okay? you do a story like that, David. And I'm sorry, let me, let me just finish. Ahead, and finish. then you say, and you guys have, you know, an hour oh. and 15 minutes. If you've got something to add to this or something to correct to it, uh, go. This is your moment. And my, my question is, as you're writing that story and pulling it together, how much of it came from White House sources how much of it came from outside of the White House? You know, it could be, it depends entirely on, on the, the story. story. I mean, many of our Iraq stories came not from the White House at all, but from work back and forth between uh, the White House, between the Iraq correspondents, the White House correspondents, others out there. The electronic technology has done some marvelous things. I remember about a year into the Iraq war when things were just beginning to turn, being at a press conference where we were told something about Iraq that I believed to be completely untrue, and sitting there with my BlackBerry and, and BlackBerrying our, 
our Iraq, our Baghdad bureau chief, who sent a message back while the press conference was still on, enabling us to have a follow-up <laughs> question from the streets of Baghdad, which I thought was pretty good. But here's the thing. It's, it's about whether an administration decides to engage the press. And your press secretary is a vehicle for that. And that's changed over time as well. Um, whether you, you trust a press secretary to give you kind of an honest read on thing or a raised eyebrow from time to time to give you some guidance, just to have an open conversation. But that's got to come from the president. And this president decided early on that the press was something as a, as a monolith to be kept at bay, and therefore the press secretary would have reduced influence and access. And that's why, you know, they wanted to sort of create the press briefing as the barroom scene from Star Wars. You know, something sort of like a, a freak show to be looked at but not to be taken very seriously. But then when an administration gets into trouble, then they recognize, oh, well, wait a minute, we've got to engage a little bit to try to work that narrative, and they don't have the relationship with the press, and frankly, they don't have the practice. So it's the level of engagement, and your press secretary can be somebody who really manages that for you, who gives you a 6 o'clock call. So I think in this administration, we haven't seen as much of that as I think previous administrations have had. And who can warn the president, hey, look, you're going to get serious questions about this, right. and you better be ready with an answer. From the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., this is the Kalb Report. Once again, Marvin Kalb. Let me uh, seek the perspective of Helen and Dan on this. Would you say it's fair to say that the White House controls, the White House controls most of the information that flows from the government to the people? Absolutely. The Absolutely. From the White House. And that within the White House, there are fewer people in control of the information or more people That has control. been the trend for fewer and fewer people to keep greater and greater control over more and more information. That's been the trend which has been accelerated in the, in the last uh, five, six years, but was already well underway before that time. Marvin, this point, and I think it's so critical the public understands this, and David has referred to it uh, before, that what you're able to get out of the White House depends so much on your attitude, which is all right, I'm going to listen to what they have to say or have somebody listen to what they have to say and then take a breath and say, now it's my job to find out what's really going on. Mm -hmm. uh, and the way you find that out is get leverage from the outside. Yes, in some administrations it's been possible to develop a source within the White House. But a good White House correspondent, two of whom are presently practicing, well, David's on book leave for the moment, but you have to have sources in Congress, in the Defense Department, in the State Department, develop sources over the years all over town because that gives you the leverage and this is really critical to understand as David referred to before you call and they've been stonewalling you all day or all week and you call and the secretary says once again he's in a meeting can't take the call you say fine tell him I'm on the air in an hour and 15 minutes <laughs> with a story uh, that I'm confident he wants to get his oar into now the first time he probably won't pick up the phone the second time he might not. But the third time he reads in the paper something the next morning or hears on the evening news something that he wanted to address, the next time you call, uh, they'll pick up the phone. They may not give you much. So the leverage is very important. The second thing is, and David Gregory referred to this, the advantage of being there, and I do think you have to be there, while you have to work your sources in other places around town by telephone uh, and wearing out shoe leather, is the difference between the right word and the almost right word, as Mark Crane once said, is the difference between lightning and a lightning bug. And there's a lot of that in the White House. If you listen very carefully, 
to the language that's used. Where I would fault the president, I do not accept myself from this criticism, is so often when the president some, says something, if the president uh, says he's concerned about uh, workers, or the president says he's concerned about uh, inequality, the next day's paper, and for that matter what goes on the evening news may be, the president's concerned about uh, workers, or the president's concerned about inequality of pay. What what should say is the president says he is concerned about workers. The president said that he's concerned about inequality. And we've lost a great deal of that since I first came to the White House in the 60s. And again, I don't accept myself in this criticism. And this president doesn't allow a follow-up. In two consecutive press conferences, he said with his own mouth, we do not torture. And no one had said, what do you mean we do not torture? He should have shown the photographs, the testimony, and so forth. And nobody said, what do you mean? And the follow-up question is frequently the question, if, if it's allowed and if it's pursued, the follow-up question is where you have the best chance of getting information when the question is really tough, which is all the more important. There was a time when presidents allowed one follow-up get a follow-up question. Now they prefer not to do it for that very reason. If you want to change the subject, you can do it very quickly. And it takes a lot of teamwork uh, and a gamble on the person who gets up behind you to ask a question to follow up when they have a question of their own. When you, when you think about what prompts this, maybe it would have happened, everything that you're describing, without Iraq. But Iraq certainly has made it easier for the White House to, to withhold information. 9-11. 9-11, and that is exactly what I wanted to ask you about. I have a feeling I'm not going to shock any of the panelists when I say that there are many people after 9-11 who think that most White House correspondents are essentially stenographers who are posing as right. journalists, and that you are all essentially spokesmen for the White House. The president sort of announces something, or the spokesman announces something, and then you report it. Now, in one sense, that's your job. You're supposed to do that. But in another sense, where and when does the reporting come in? Does the digging come in? Does the questioning come in? Uh, at what point? And I don't mean to sound like everybody else who was just laying it on the White House press corps, because I think to a certain extent they were doing what they're paid to do. But there is a certain point. The New York Times, for example, you're going to tell me about the articles that were written in the summer of 2002, yes, pointing out <laughs> that certain things might happen in Iraq. But the weight of the journalism was not towards saying, hey, American people, something may be developing here that you may not like. You were going along, not you personally, but the Times was going along for it, for the ride, NBC, argue with me, David Gregory, was going along for the ride. No, I don't, I don't accept that premise at all. I hope not. Uh, I really don't. And I think that, and, and Helen and I have been on other panels where we've disagreed about this. Um, I, I think it's wrong. I think that there is a tendency in this country now to look at the result in Iraq and work backward and say, why didn't someone stop this? Where was the press? Why didn't the press stop this? And even your formulation, Marvin, I think is a false one and is belied by your own journalistic experience that it's somehow our job to stand up as there is a policy gathering form and say, hey, America, this may not be right for you.
Why not? Be, well, because Helen, we're not supposed to be rendering those judgments. What's supposed you, to be? Wait a second. You're, you're rendering judgments. Well, that's a different matter, Helen. You can ask questions, and I think that the questions were asked. No. The new. Well, Helen, you, David, it's, it's not David enough to just say that. Wait a second. Let me just. You asked me a very serious question that, re, that requires a little Everybody bit of time to answer. Everybody was a lap dog for two years in the run up to the I'm war. I'm sorry, no, Helen. Let, let's let let's, let's look at. Hang on a sec. Let no, David know, there, there's a lot of people who believe that, but uh, but I think it, it, it's not true. The questions were asked, and I'm afraid to confront people who believe that by saying that um, there are people who who would have liked for us to have condemned the policy. You're looking at it through your own political prism rather than focusing on the fact, look at the press conferences, look at the questions that were asked. And it wasn't just the press. The country was for this war. Institutionally, the Congress was for this war. Democrats running for the presidency voted to authorize this war. That doesn't mean the press is for this war. I didn't. Be no, careful, no, Mark, no. about the use of the word for. Yeah, We're I mean, not I, it's here very to be sloppy. For or against. We are here to make sure that you understand the decision make, the discussions and the decision making that's going on in the White House. Now, I'm the first to admit here that on any given day, we only know a small percentage of what's happening in the White House, and that's why you get out and you dig, and you're still not going to get it all. But your and newspaper said there were weapons, and they said many other things on the front page every day. The New York Times published a they lot of several stories that were wrong about weapons of mass destruction. The New York Times also published, in the summer of 2002, the outlines of the war plan, a series of different stories that described what could go wrong. This was 2002. Yeah. What, could go, what could go wrong with the war? Now, we had problems with those stories. We had an absence of imagination of some other things that could go wrong that it never dawned on us could go wrong. You said a couple of weeks ago, in retrospect, we didn't go far enough. We had an absence of imagination about just how bad it could get, That's quote right. unquote. That's right. Let me give you some examples. As I go back through our coverage, I don't see any stories that said, if we get bogged down there for four or five years, we're going to empower the Iranians and give them much greater influence. I didn't see any stories that said, uh, for example, that if we fail to find weapons of mass destruction, it is going to undercut the president's ability to declare that other countries are developing weapons of mass destruction, even if they are. For this president and presidents that follow are going to have a very difficult time making that accusation, and yet we know there are countries around the world that are trying to develop nuclear weapons. So we did have that absence, but there is, if you didn't know the war was coming, and if you didn't know that there were potential problems with that, you weren't listening to David Gregory on TV, you weren't reading the New York Times, and you may have been living on a different planet. Let me, let me briefly interrupt this discussion. We'll get back to I'll David. Dan on this too. No, no. I just want to tell our viewers and listeners that this is the Kalb Report. I'm Marvin Kalb. I'm here with David Gregory, Helen Thomas, Dan Rather, and David Sanger, and we're discussing coverage of the White House. Dan Rather, is the question of patriotism, the rush of patriotism after 9-11, perhaps part of the explanation for what the press did or didn't do? Yes, I think it is, and I think it's a large part. Uh, let me say, as a preface here, I've said before and said again, 
that criticism in this area, I do not accept myself. I explicitly include myself into it. 9-11 was a tremendous shock to the whole, it was a hammer to the heart for the whole country, including journalists. Now, I want to be careful not to speak for anybody other than myself. Uh, I can't remember being as deeply moved by anything short of the assassination of President Kennedy or some things happened during the Vietnam War, but it was a shock to the nervous system. Now, what I saw you with tears in your eyes once. Well, and without apology. Yeah. Uh, one doesn't apologize for grief. Yeah. But this, journalists were like most other people, affected by these emotions. Now, particularly in that circumstance, the worst thing that can be said about you is that you're not patriotic. And what happened almost immediately in the wake of 9-11, very quickly, if you tried to ask a tough question, and I want to publicly in his presence uh, compliment David Gregory, who's been one who has asked tough questions and tried to follow up. David Sanger, again, not because they're here, but because their record demonstrates that, but very quickly after 9-11, those highly partisan, politically partisan supporters of the administration and some people who felt passionately about their uh, ideology saw an opening. And the opening was, if you question, mm. if you dig, if you go against anything, just even look like you're going to raise a question, we are going to hang a sign around you that says unpatriotic or some version of that. And that led to fear said before, I, I think in some ways it was fear in every newsroom in the country. If someone wants to say, well, it wasn't in my newsroom, okay. But there was this deep-seated fear. Be careful as you go, because the country's nerve ends are raw. Did it come from your corporate well, headquarters? That's another subject which I hope you'll get to. <laughs> but I <laughs> no, 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 because I, I think the, 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 the great plates underneath the journalism world had shifted quite a bit. That journalism was seen far, far less in fact, almost zero, as a, as a public trust and operated in the public service by many of the people who owned and operated uh, the larger news entities. There are exceptions to that. But at any rate, follow back the point. This business of, boy, in, in this atmosphere, do you want to run the risk of having unpatriotic hung around you or un-American? How could you question? And I do think that that seeped deeply into journalism. I quite agree we all have a lot to answer for. Citizens have a lot to answer for in the run-up to the war. But we journalists, in my humble opinion, cannot duck our own responsibility and our own accountability. We did not live up as a group and as a whole, and I include myself in that. We didn't, we didn't measure up to the highest standards of American journalism of, listen, if you've got a tough question, get off your duff, stand up, look them in the eye, and ask them that question and try to follow up. We didn't do it in many, many cases because we were afraid. I think this was an understandable fear, but I do think it's critical understanding journalism's performance through this, that you understand the fear factor. And the public, those of you in the public who, who don't applaud, who don't stand up for journalists, who will do what I just described despite the odds, and David made a very important point about the internet. These days it's instantaneous. Before you even finish the question, those with a partisan political and or ideological agenda, will, they will do the effect of dropping a safe on you from six floors up. Absolutely. And very quickly done. And that affects the journalists. And there, there has been a, ten, a tendency, more than ever I think, to just move with the herd. 
get in the middle, move the herd. It's harder to get hurt that way. I just think it's important to point out that we can have this debate about what the press did or did not do based on the current set of facts about this war and looking at 9-11. But this is an incremental process. This is something that develops day by day. And the reporting was done, as David suggested, about the inner workings of the administration. And by the way, a lot of people who don't support the war who make arguments about the war, were making arguments about it then, where do you think a lot of those arguments came from? From arguments that were being unearthed by the press as Absolutely. a whole. So I think the questions were asked. I again invite critics of the war to ask themselves whether what they objected to was that we didn't have the tone right in their estimation. That we didn't well, ask questions in a certain asked. way. They were not asked. Helen, I, I just think you're Harry wrong. I Fletcher why. From the moment for two years in the run-up no, to I'm the sorry. war, you made arguments to yeah. Ari Fleischer, which years, is your role now. You didn't years. ask questions based on her. O'Neill said two weeks after the first cabinet meeting, suddenly Saddam Hussein was on the on the yeah, radar this screen. This information was made known. This became a big part of the story. The we first week of the, the war, first week of the war, war, within days of the invasion of Iraq. The things were not going as planned. It became a huge issue in the press. The president himself said the press was getting hysterical about what was not happening on the ground. We were, we were chronicling these events, uh, and I, I, think, I think the record David, is clear. David, you have been called by a conservative blog a barking moon bat. <laughs> now, I haven't the faintest idea what that means, what that by the way. <laughs> but picking up what Dan Rather was saying before, you are certainly one of those who asked very sharp questions during this whole buildup and since. The question that I would like to ask you about as you begin to discuss and we begin to understand the impact that the internet has had upon the whole process of reporting, not just at the White House, but that's where you are. When do you get think time? When do you get that time when there is a story that's developing and you know it, you know it in your gut, your head, it's developing, but it's not there to be broadcast yet. And MSNBC wants you on, and the Nightly wants you on, and there's the pressure to get on and to respond to the conservative mm -hmm. blogs who are attacking you or criticizing you in any case. What about that issue? Do you have the time now? Well, I think that there's still enough time. I mean, I think what happens is that some of these stories aren't allowed to marinate the way that maybe they, they would have, and, and so you've got, you know, you're dealing with a lot of raw data all the time, and so the story isn't yet complete, but you're reporting it out as it becomes available. There's a uh, part of that is, the, is what generates a lot of that criticism is in that gathering process. So you know, Helen and I can be in a contentious briefing, and people are making judgments based upon those questions and based upon that back and forth. Well, we're just having a back and forth. Maybe that makes it on the news. Maybe it makes it into copy. Maybe it doesn't. It's just part of that tension that's within the White House, and that's okay. Look, I think on both sides, I mean, I hear people on the right who are upset with me, people on the left uh, who are upset with me. So. It's we are not, just not about upset the, with you, David. Sorry? <laughs> we are not upset with you. Well, but I, look, I, I want to be on the record. I'm yeah. upset with him. He's a, she's a, yeah. <laughs> and by the way, I don't disagree with Helen Thomas lightly because uh, she, I can get in a lot of trouble for that by her later. So, uh, no, I just think that um, uh, I think you try to tune the rest of that out, but I think Dan is right. I mean, I think that, that polarization is, is real and it plays itself out in terms of people trying to. Uh, to, to take apart the process 
in a way. And we're, and we're part of the, the process of the news gathering but process. But is there polarization within the media yes. itself? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Right, it, so are you talking about more than Fox here? What, what well, are we talking be, about? It can be talk radio. It can be anybody. It can be the blogs. People who, who take a look at the journalists, not just the issues. So they're looking at me. If I ask a question, I asked the question in, um, within the past uh, six months where I said to the president, do you think you still have the credibility to be a spokesman for this war? And I was, you know, I was attacked by that. I think that's a straight ahead legitimate question. Um, but, you know, I, it goes both ways. I mean, the people on the left, as we were having this discussion, would, uh, would, would level their attacks for not going after Bush hard enough. So, yeah, but this whole business sides. now about, even in your own answer here, about people on the left, people on the right, we understand that the politics is polarized. But explain to me, David Sanger, why the media has become polarized. Well, you know, if you look at the history of the American media in, in the American Republic, we're sort of back to a period of time, or we're moving back to a period of time, that's more like the way the media was during the Jefferson administration. You know, there were things said about Thomas Jefferson when he was running for president and when he was president that you probably couldn't get into a tabloid today. Um, and then after the Civil War, we saw more of a professionalization. It took generations, but people expected that when you picked up the newspaper, at least on the front page, not the editorial page, you were getting a fairly straight up nonpartisan view of the news. What's happened because of the internet, and to some degree cable TV, is that people have now begun to migrate back to news sources that reinforce their own worldview. Instead of what I think we all would like, which is that you go to news sources that don't reinforce your view so that you're questioning your own assumptions. And that's pretty dangerous. Um, I wanted to go back to a question you asked David before, which I think was a very important one, which is, where do you get the time? to go do the rest of this. Because sometimes the news out of the White House is in what they say. Most of the time, it's in the silences. It's what's not being discussed at the podium. Sometimes it's what's not being discussed in the meetings. Um, I spent a year of my time as, uh, more than a year, as White House correspondent, uh, working with a colleague of mine on the investigation into AQ Khan. The, Pakistani uh, scientist who ended up helping arm Iran and Libya and North Korea, and maybe a few countries that we're only now beginning to discover. It was a subject that was occupying the president and his staff very frequently. It was discussed almost not at all. If you count the number of times that President Bush has discussed Osama bin Laden and the number of times he's discussed AQ Khan, it's not even going to be close. Um, but we felt that it was an extraordinarily important story to even do from the White House. Um, but it's a harder and harder slog because, you know, David's got to go on many TV outlets. We've got not only the newspaper to feed now, but the website mm -hmm. because people aren't going to wait till the next morning for their right. news. And those little videos you see on right. the website and radio broadcast and all of that. And uh, I think one of the most important things to remember in all of this is to cut time for your reporters to not be on the air, to not be in print. But that is not what is happening. It's the exact opposite of what is happening. And is there a danger there, Dan, rather, that we may be 
putting out an awful lot of stuff, but it's stuff that doesn't have solid legs under it. Well, real and present danger of that happening. In addition to what David has just said, let's don't forget that in many news organizations there's been not only a shrinking of time that the reporters who are there have to dig on stories, particularly do investigative reports, uh, but they also shrink the number of reporters. There have been cutbacks all over American journalism. Uh, in many places, not just to the bone, but beyond the bone. And the number of uh, foreign bureaus uh, that exist now, as compared to not very long ago, with few exceptions, uh, is reduced at the very time we need more Absolutely. international reporting. We have less international reporting in, in depth, again, with some few exceptions. So there, it, there is, the, when you talk about White House coverage, there is an overarching narrative here that has a lot of pieces to it, not the least of which is that as it gets tougher and tougher for reporters on the line, such as the two here, and as it gets tough, particularly with the blogosphere willing to, that part of it that's partisan, political, or ideologically motivated, to really drop down on reporters, it's very hard news needs backers, needs owners who don't back up. And there was a time that that was a given because at that time, news was seen even in large multinational corporations as a public service. From what I can see, that has, if not disappeared, it's certainly been reduced greatly. So when we talk about, listen, the ideal White House reporter is not afraid to get on his feet and ask the tough question and or follow up on a question that his colleague had asked but he needs, the, he needs to know that those who own the network or the newspaper or the magazine are going to back him to the hilt. And without that, then you get the increased herd mentality of just get in the middle and move along. Dan, I've got to ask you this question. I mean, you've opened the door to it. I can't help it. I didn't mean to open you had the door a, to anything. <laughs> you had a rough time in September of 2004 with the Bush White House and the whole question of the president's military service. And in a recent article in New York Magazine, you expressed unhappiness, very strong unhappiness, with the way in which CBS, the leadership of CBS, backed you up. Help us through that a little bit. Well, I don't think this is the, the place or time to go into uh, no, what makes its way through. But just I, I'll give try us to a headline the, or two. I'll try to answer the question. Uh, that I don't think the public uh, understands fully. I do find that the public understands but perhaps not fully, the situation in which as, as in, we've had increased mergers and consolidation of news outlets, where you have anywhere from 75 to 85% of the major news outlets owned by the same companies who have all kinds of other interests besides news. And here's what happens so often, that these large multinational conglomerates, they have interest in Washington that, that involve billions of dollars. They need regulatory and legislative, they have regulatory and legislative needs, sometimes to get something passed, sometimes to stop something. And what happens very often is what the line reporter or what their news division is trying to do is investigate some of the people for whom they are looking for these favors. Now, there's no excuse for big government or big corporations to intrude into newsrooms nearly to the extent that I think they have been doing. You think that's what happened at CBS? Uh, I do think that was an element in what happened at CBS. An element. I do. 
I think is a very important element of what happened in CPS. From the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., this is the Kalb Report. Once again, Marvin Kalb. Let me talk a little bit now, raise the question really, about what do we know, what do you guys know as White House correspondents about the president? In other words, we make certain assumptions, those of us on the outside, that, ah, <laughs> that, that, that people who are there at the White House, they really know this man. They can figure him out. And Helen, why don't you start us on this? Um, I know he wanted to go to war from the moment he stepped into the White House. I know the reporters were never skeptical enough. They gave up their one weapon. We were told every day for two years we're going to war. No one asked why. This man has an, uh, he has yet to, to explain why we're in Iraq. Every reason given for being in Iraq has turned out to be false. Mm -hmm. How can we tolerate that? I was on a panel the other day with um, the head of the communications is gone now. Right. And he said we were wrong on everything. Well, if you're wrong, why are you still there? Well, he's left. <laughs> My point is... <laughs> I know it. I, I'm just kidding. His foreign policy is and justifies the means. Preemptive war torture. Do you have access to the president, David Sanger? Uh, certainly not. I mean, at the beginning of the Bush presidency, before it began, uh, a colleague of mine and I went down to the ranch for a very lengthy interview with the president before his first inaugural. Talked to the farmhouse. We took a nice hike down through the to the to the waterfall and the ranch. In one of the one weeks of the year that it actually had water in the waterfall, we had a nice conversation. I came away from this thinking, you know, this could be pretty interesting. The president's pretty open, and you know all that. I think I was probably pretty close to the last lengthy conversation I ever had with him. Uh, you know, there have been some moments where the president either has had background or off-the-record sessions um, with a number of reporters. He's had some. David and I have been to, uh, you know, at the end of the summer at, at the ranch and so forth. But they don't tend to be terribly deep policy conversations. Do you have a sense time. at these sessions, David Gregory, that you, you're getting to know the guy? Well, I feel that way. I mean, I've been covering him since 2000, having covered him the campaign where the dynamic was different. I think I was able to take his measure. I think he's fairly easy to read. Um, I think he betrays a lot about how he thinks and how he approaches issues through his public statements. And I think going back to uh, something we discussed earlier um, and what Dan mentioned, you know, you pick up these nuances and in, in, in what he says, what he doesn't say, or how he says something. Um, so I feel like I've learned a lot in, in that regard. I don't pretend to know him uh, better than that. But I just, you know, you get, for instance, we're in the middle of this Middle East Peace Conference, conference that's going to happen in Annapolis. And, and I remember uh, I was told that uh, when President Clinton got on the chopper to Camp David before uh, in 2000, when they were uh, negotiating uh, between Barack and Arafat, that he said to, to his team, well, we're going to, we're either going to be successful or we're going to get caught trying. I can't imagine this president ever saying something like that. He doesn't like to, to get into a process like the peace process at that level of detail and stay up all night. That's just not his approach. So you learn some of these things about what he's like, how he approaches problems in the course of the presidency through some time with him and through watching events uh, play what out. Helen, Helen, just a minute, let me ask you this question. Does it make any difference whether you're covering 
a Democratic Party president or a Republican hell, Party president? Hell no. No at all. They're both sides, both sides guilty of the same problems. Absolutely. The moment they step, they, during the campaign, they always promised an open administration, right. many news conferences. Right. The moment they step into the White House, the Oval Office, all information belongs to them. What I think belongs in the public preserve, mm -hmm. and they think public domain, that is. It becomes their private preserve, everything, every bit of information in the White House. And you have to scrounge to get it. I mean, the secrecy is so endemic. Can I raise one point, Martha, just, just, just quickly, because it, it speaks to the, the, the run-up to the war and something that both David and Dan talked about. One of the things that I think we could have done a better job of in the run-up to the war, everybody says there's a herd mentality, but sometimes that's helpful for the public. And I think that the White House press corps should always examine whether it's doing a good job following up on itself. And in a press conference, watching the flow, everybody comes in there with their own question, but are we waiting and watching and following up on each other to try to pin the president down? And you know, bear in mind, thinking about what to ask the president is not completely easy because he, he has a pretty good sense of what he's going to be asked. He knows what the issues are. And as this president likes to say, you know, this isn't his first rodeo. So he knows that how you're going to come at him. <laughs> But following up on each other and building the pressure that way can be very effective. And you said failure of imagination in some respects, and I agree with that. Uh, um, and I think that's another area where we could have been more effective. Well, you know, why do you the think that's the case? To know how to play a press conference. So, yeah. you know, if David is drilling into him and he thinks, okay, the last thing I want is a follow-up to what Gregory just said, okay? He knows who to turn to in that room to get a, to get a question on a completely different subject. And... You know, we have had moments, and I don't think we've done this very successfully, but we have had moments where we've gotten together before a press conference and said, conspiracy. look, we need an, it is definitely a conspiracy, and it doesn't work often enough. Okay? <laughs> and, and uh, you know, we, we have tried to go do that at various moments. I would say that has fallen down, and it's because everybody comes in wanting to do and say something different, which is fine but often not, doesn't get to the news. We're rushing towards the end of this, and I want to get in this. Let me tick off the name. Let me name a president, and you give me an adjective, a word to describe that person, <laughs> a quick sentence. Helen John Kennedy. Inspired. Inspired. Yes, he had great inspiration. He had vision. He had a great sense of war and peace. He said, we're going to land men on the moon in a decade. And did it. Linda Johnson? Created the Peace Corps. Seldom, if ever, has the president understood uh, where the levers of power were in Washington and how to manipulate those levers of power. Richard Nixon? I never think of Richard Nixon that I don't think about his potential. He came to the American presidency perhaps as well prepared as anybody, certainly anybody in the 20th century. Yeah. Um, the word paranoid comes to mind. Uh, no, I'm not a psychologist, and I didn't say that to be a smart remark. But he, he was so determined to not just beat his enemies, but to destroy his political enemies, uh, that the potential, by and large, went by the wayside. Gerald Ford? David? 
You didn't cover him. I, I didn't cover Gerald Ford. So well, you were in uh, kindergarten. Well, <laughs> Gerald, slightly beyond that. I said he gave us a tremendous sense of security after Watergate. He gave the, sent the country a new confidence that everything was going to be all right. I agree with that. He was amiable, uh, which is not a small thing, particularly given his time. I'll be Actually, very interested to see press. what history says in the long pool of history. It'll take a while uh, as to whether uh, how the pardon of Richard Nixon happened. Uh, being trying to be what's left of a White House correspondent, we know what they say happened. In my mind, well, it might have happened that way, but I'd like to know what really happened. Yeah. It'll be a while before we know that. Jimmy Carter? Oh, come <laughs> on. But <laughs> <laughs> human rights is the centerpiece of his foreign policy. Human rights. Human rights on Jimmy Carter. Ronald Reagan? Knew what he believed. Um, and strong Turn in support of what, right. what he believed. And I would say, too, he became a, a master of the White House stagecraft. It's probably where most of the artwork that we've been discussing tonight was first put on the canvas. <laughs> really? You, um, wouldn't, you wouldn't say that was Richard Nixon? I would say it was Richard Nixon. When well, the first, the first uh, in, in terms of message control, I think <coughs> the Reagan White House did it pretty brilliantly. George oh, H.W. Bush. David, what? Um, thinking. Thinking. Foreign, thinking. Foreign policy, good on foreign policy. He knew, he knew enough not to go to Baghdad. He said there might be house-to-house -house fighting and even a civil war. He did. I think, uh, certainly, I think much more of a diplomat uh, than his son, but not, uh, not the best politician. Dan? Whether he would acknowledge it or not, I think uh, what we know of history already shows that he was hampered somewhat by the view of his presidency as being really the third Ronald Reagan presidency, Absolutely. which is to say he followed on, right. and uh, that was a fact of life for him. Bill Clinton. Flawed, obviously, but deeply intellectually curious. You could go into the Oval Office and sit down for an hour and argue out a policy, and he enjoyed the process of being challenged. I'm not sure we've seen that in this administration. George H. Bush. George W. Bush. Uh, I think a gifted politician, and I, one word I would say, certain. What do you mean? Dead certain. I think he's, he's certain about the course that he's followed. You know, I've been told, Gregory, that you are supposed to be a superb mimic. I do some imitations. I don't do them on television. <laughs> do, you ever, <laughs> do you ever do a president? Do you ever do a president? I, you know, I do, I do Bush, you know, when I was uh, in Paris. Well, do him. Do I, I questioned the president about why Europeans were upset with him, and I turned to Chirac and asked him a question in French, and it was as if I'd committed a war crime, and Bush took off his headsets with the translation, and he said, Gregory, what are you doing? <laughs> The guy memorizes four words in French, and he plays like he's intercontinental. Save that for your memoirs. Those of us who have dined with Gregory in Waco, Texas, and we can give you the restaurant list, <laughs> and we've had many a nights to do it, uh, with a beer or two, 
this gets really good. <laughs> Hold it. We have, I'm so sorry to say this, by the way, we'd love to go on, but we've run out of time. We're the victims, once again, of the tyranny of the clock. My deepest thanks and appreciation to a superb panel, just a superb panel, and our enthusiastic and attentive audience here at the National Press Club. Thank you all for watching and listening. I'm Marvin Kalb, and as Ed Morrow used to say, good night and good luck. The Kalb Report is directed by Robert Vitarelli. The producers are Heather Date and Tina Creek. Our executive producer is Michael Friedman. Our series is produced by the George Washington University, the National Press Club, and the Joan Shorenstein Center at Harvard University. The Kalb Report is underwritten by a grant from the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. For more information about the Kalb Report, please visit kalb.gwu.edu or call 202-994-8810. This forum was presented before a live audience at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C.